right from the book of Job. Join me as we pray. Father in heaven, so grateful that we have your word. So grateful that we have the book of Job. So grateful for these encouraging words that the things that we are going through, however great or small, are not meaningless because they're in your hands. A little boy who brought his lunch to Jesus thought it was meaningless. What can Jesus do with a few fish and little pieces of bread my mommy gave me? And it so pleased you to do something really special. And that's what you enjoy doing. You like being close to the brokenhearted. You like doing that which is considered impossible. And you take the things that you have, uh, the lots that you've given in our life, the assignments you've given, and you're working out something really, really special. That when we see you face to face, we're going to say, wow, Lord. That's what that was about. I had no clue. I thought it was meaningless. So Lord, I'm grateful that you are all powerful, that you're all good, and that you work all these things out for your glory. And we look forward to the day when we see you face to face. Look forward to the day when you wipe away that last remaining tear. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Would you appreciate them again? That, um, I hope the Lord will give you a song that you hang on to. Um, I encountered that song. It wasn't my suggestion that we sing this song, but uh, a song takes me back. And when we were, and I say we, my wife was really the one that was uh, experiencing it more than I. But there were, we had a, a series of chemo that we had to go through, and it was pretty bad stuff. And uh, the first uh, applications were really, really bad. And I remember uh, sitting on the sofa by myself, and Nancy was in the bedroom, not doing very well. And uh, so, <clears throat> someone emailed me that song, picked it up somewhere. A friend sent it to me, uh, and they were going through a similar struggle. And I played that song and read it in uh, Job chapter 13, starting verse 15. I swear that song comes from, though he slay me, I, yet I will hope in him. And I thought, <laughs> Lord, this is really real. This is really real. And the uh, Lord takes us to these times. And the thing that is so precious to him is when we cling to him in those uh, deep and dark moments. We have nothing else to hold on to but to him. And to recognize that uh, he's in charge. He's good. And uh, he's going to get the glory through all this. So we don't know how it's all going to end. We don't know how it's all going to be in playing out. But it's not meaningless. And I hope as we look at this, um, I don't know why I'm so emotional today. <clears throat> but as we look at this passage of scripture, I hope that you uh, will discover that the things that the Lord has given to each of us in this room, and the stories are many, that you would walk away affirmed and encouraged that God is great, that he is good, and the things that we are dealing with are not at all meaningless. And there is going to be a day when we're going to stand before him and we're going to see him and he's going to unfold some things and we will be filled with great awe. We will not at all be disappointed. 
and he'll receive all the honor and all the glory, and we will just be even more deeply in love with him, and so glad to be in his presence. So I hope as we go through the book of Job here today, we're going to be in chapters 8 through chapter 10, we won't be reading all of those chapters, but I hope that you're in a life group, I hope that you're going through these things together, and uh, that you're finding the joy of Job. <laughs> when we first thought about doing the book of Job, I thought, who'd ever do a series of the book of Job? <laughs> but boy, it has been rich. It has been rich to, for, for me to go through it. If you're visiting Big Valley for the first time, you're welcome. Glad that you're here. Glad that you're a part of the family. This is what we do. We go through a series like this, and we study the Bible, and encourage you to bring your Bible. If you don't have one, we want to give you one. Just see us right afterwards, and we'll make sure that you have a good Bible in your hands. But be a good student of the Word because uh, it's going to be your strength. You're going to build your life upon the word. You're going to find that when the storms of life come, if you've if you built your house on the word, you're going to stand. You're going to weather the storms that will come. And they, they certainly uh, will come. This series in Job, well, it's only gonna, we're only going to be in it for a few more weeks. We'll go to the first week of November. Um, has great significance. There was an 18th century philosopher named David Hume who postulated and speculated based upon what he saw around the world that there's no God. And what he was struggling with and what he was dealing with is, is knowing and hearing, uh, he had some experiences in a Jesuit seminary, that God is great. There's nothing that he can't do. He is all powerful. He had heard those words. And you have too. And he also heard that God is good. He is so good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Well, then why is there evil? And I share that question with you because your, your children and your grandchildren will be confronted with that question. And if any of you know some of the things that are going on in our culture today by some of the new age atheists, these arguments are really old. They have invested themselves in studying David Hume. They bought his lies and they just cannot understand how can evil exist if God is good and he is great. Evidently, if, he's, if he, he must not be so great because if he was great, then he could conquer evil. So therefore, maybe evil is greater than his greatness. And so maybe God isn't great, he's impotent. But if he is great, then how can he be good? My father-in-law had uh, a friend who fought in the World War II in European theater. He was one of the liberating forces of Auschwitz or one of the prison war camps. And he saw the travesties that was there, walked away and said, God is neither great nor is he good. He would never have allowed these things to happen. And that's what we're going to be dealing with today. Can God be trusted in the challenges that we face? Is he good? That's what Job was wrestling with. Is he good? Does he know what's going on with me? I know he is able. I know that he is great. But he seems so far away, he's not answering my prayer, he's allowing me to wallow in this thing, and it makes no sense at all. In fact, Job later on will say, as you study it, he says, God's not just, because there is no way in anything in my life, particularly when you look at Job 29 and Job 31, which we'll get there in a few weeks, he says, this is my life, and I haven't done anything that deserves this, because the general thought is, is that if you're suffering really bad, it's because you did something really bad. That's why, G, that's why the disciples asked Jesus in John chapter 9, Lord, why is this guy blind? Did he do something really, really bad? Or was it his parents that did something really, really bad that now that he's afflicted with blindness? And Jesus said, nothing, it's not any of that. It's so that the power of God might be exalted in his life. God has a special plan. It's, his, his blindness is not meaningless. Let me show you. <laughs> and God 
did a great, great thing. So as we go through this, this is what we're wrestling with is can God be trusted? When we're experiencing these challenges and these difficulties and these afflictions, and it could be any number of things, we, we tend to park on the cancers and the diseases like Parkinson's. I have several friends who are debilitated with Parkinson's, very close friends that were once strong men that now today cannot take care of themselves. I, I, I know of their struggle. I've been with them through their, through their struggle. But I know others have suffered great injustices. Um, a husband walks out on, a, on his wife and his mother of his children and leaves them alone. Uh, a person gets fired unjustly from their place of business and years of investment. Um, financial collapses. All of those things kind of are under this cover of, of Job. So let's look at Job chapter 8. I'm just going to read some verses here in chapter 8. And we're going to go through actually all of 8 and a little bit of 9. And then we're going to look at the backdrop that will kind of give us some understanding. But just kind of track with me. This is Bildad. Bildad's spokesperson number two. We talked a few weeks ago about Eliphaz, this friend. Bildad comes in and, and he's not kind at all. And it's, it's, it just agrees me how he could be face to face with a man who just lost all of his children. And he's going to tell Job why his children died. Imagine someone, your close friend, and you're grieving because your children were killed in a car accident. And instead of words of comfort, he says, let me tell you why your kids died. That's what you're going to hear from Bill Dad. This is very, very real and very transparent. So here's Bill Dad, chapter 8, verse 1. Bill Dad the Shuhite replied, how long, Job, will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. And when I look at it, well, what is he talking about? I look at chapters um, 6 and 7 where Job is speaking and that Job says some really good stuff here. Were you even listening, Bildad? <laughs> you know, were you paying attention to what Job was saying? Did you hear what Eliphaz said to Job? And now you're looking at what he says. You're saying, Job, you're just full of hot air. Were you even listening? Now look what he says. Does God pervert justice, Job? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? And what Bildad is saying is, Job, there's a law in the universe, just like gravity. If you drop a rock, it's going to fall. And we all know that this is true, that those who suffer, suffer because of the wrong that they have done. Do you think God's going to make an exception with you, Job? Because Job has just said, I haven't done anything wrong that deserves anything like this. He's lost his entire fortune. He's lost all of his kids. He's suffering incredible sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He has worms on his skin, maggots that he's scraping off with pottery. He's put dust over his... He's lost it all. He says, what have I done to have deserved this? And, and, and Bildad is saying, Job, God's not going to make an exception for you. You're suffering like this because of your sin. Fess up. That's what verse 3 is all about. And now he's going to talk about his kids. So Job, when your children sinned against God, God gave them over to the penalty of their sin. He killed them <laughs> because of their sin. Verse five, but if you look to God, Job, and this is where he gets like Joel Olstein, but if you look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf. He'll restore you to your rightful place and your beginnings will seem humble. So prosperous in your, will your future be. And I make light, but it is true. There's a lot of folks that are quite well known who preach a prosperity gospel that if you do everything right, 
God will bless you. He wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be successful. And all you have to do is give me a little bit of money and God will honor that. All you have to do is just watch this show. God's going to honor that. And all your problems are going to be gone. That's, that's what Bildad is saying. And that's wrong. That is false teaching. Verse 8. Bildad appeals now to those who are older than him. Ask the former generations. And Bildad recognizes that, he, that none of us live very long. And so he says, ask the former generations and find out what their fathers have learned. They've learned the same thing that I'm sharing with you. For we were, only, for we were born only yesterday and know nothing. And when he says we, he's referring to Eliphaz and Zophar, who's sitting with him. Older men, maybe even older than Job's father. Says, for we... We're born only yesterday. We know nothing. Our days on earth are but a shadow. And that's true, folks. None of us, gonna, we all are destined to die. And so will not these older men, will they not instruct you and tell you? In verse 10, will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Those are those long uh, reeds, you know, that you see along the delta that are growing, the, uh, the, uh, the little willows and things that grow. Can, can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Where can reeds thrive without water while still growing and uncut? They wither more quickly than grass. You take the water away, they instantly die. He's saying that's just exactly how trouble comes. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What he trusts in, what the godless trusts in is fragile. And that's true. What the godless relies on is the spider's web. That's true. He leans on his web, but it gives way. He clings to it, but it does not hold. And that is true. The things that the godless hang on to, are, they're going to find are going to be like a spider's web. And that is absolutely true. Not true about Job, but that is true. And so it entwines its roots around the pile of rocks. So he's like a well-watered plant, the godless are. In the sunshine, this is verse 16, spreading its roots over the garden. It entwines its roots around a pile of rocks. It looks for a place among the stones. But when it is torn from its spot, that place disowns it and says, I never saw you. And the Bible speaks often of that, that the godless will be blown away like the chaff. But it's not true about Job. Surely, the godless life withers away and from the soil other plants grow. Surely God does not reject a blameless man. God wouldn't be doing this, Job, if you were blameless. Maybe some have shared that with you. You wouldn't be in the spot if you had lived a more righteous life. Or strengthen the hands of evildoers. God doesn't do that. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. And God is going to do that, but not in the way that Bildad thinks. Your enemies will be clothed in shame and the tents of the wicked will be no more. And so Job replies to this. We'll just go into it a little bit. Verse 2, indeed, I know that everything you said here, Bildad, is true. How can a mortal man be righteous before God? And Job's right. I mean, how can Enoch? There's none righteous, not a single one. None of us do good. He, he knows that. That is an absolute truth. There's not a single one of us that can be righteous before God. And now Job says, the one might dis wish to dispute with God. He could not answer him one time out of a thousand. Recognize his humility here. Some of us, I've had friends who say, man, when I see God, I'm going to tell him a thing or two. <laughs> they don't get it, do they? They have a very, very small view of God. Job does not have a small view of God. Bildad does not have a small view of God. They have a huge view of God. They just don't think that he's near or close. Nor is he necessarily a God who loves 
It says, though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him. One time out of a thousand, his wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has resisted God and come out unscathed? Well, that's absolutely true, isn't it? Let us pray. Father, thank you for just the reading of your word. You, you, Paul told Timothy, don't neglect doing this because there is great benefit. Just reading the word. And so, Lord, would you take your word, plant it deep in our hearts so we would be like a well-watered plant before you whose leaves do not wither and uh, does not dry up and, the, and the, the wind blows it away, that we would be a tree planted next to you. And so, Lord, would you tend us, would you prune us, that we might bear great fruit for you, would you help us to abide in you, and your word abide deeply in us, so that when the storms of our lives come, that our house isn't washed away because we're firmly planted upon you. So, Lord, we bless you and we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in your note, um, program this morning that you came in, there's some notes. I encourage you to follow along, to write these things. What's important about those notes isn't so much what you're going to fill in the blanks, but, but look up the verses of Scripture. Underline them in your Bible. They will be a great help and encouragement to you. They have been to me, and uh, I trust that this word will be meaningful to you. I was talking to Joe Reichert. Appreciate, you know, we need little handles on it. You know, there's a friend of his at First Baptist who used to meet his Garland Ghost. He said, Garland, how are you doing? I said, if I'd be doing any better, I'd be dead. <laughs> that's a great thing to say, right? Because that's true, folks, right? <laughs> I mean, our best days are really, are really ahead of us. And we look forward to that day when we see him face to face. So let's just get a little bit of backdrop. Because uh, I don't want us to lose a little bit of, of where we have been. So chapters 1 and chapter 2 gives us, a, gives us a, a view of what we don't see. What we don't see, and Paul says again, it's just good to remind us that the things that we wrestle with are not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. There are things going on in places that you do not see where the affliction that you and I bear, the enemy wants to use that affliction to discourage us, to move us away from Christ, to, to, not, to not trust in him, not to believe in him, to lose our grip on him. So there is a great spiritual battle in and what, what the enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. So we need to recognize that the things that we are wrestling with are not flesh and blood. Yeah, I know it's Parkinson's. But there's a spiritual battle that, wants, that, that the enemy wants to use this disease to get my eyes off of Jesus. Yes, I know there is this chronic fatigue. There's this chronic depression. Lord, The enemy wants to use this, but God wants to use it for good. And so there really is a real spiritual battle to take place, and we need to be aware of it. It's not just physical that we're dealing with. In chapter 3, we experience Job's darkness of soul, and this is where it gets real. Because every one of us, when we are afflicted, will go through some deep waters. I'm going to share with you a story about Johnny Erickson Tata in a little bit. And she went through great periods of depression. It was suicidal, and maybe some of you have had those thoughts. You're not abnormal. Those are... Very real things. And Job, as you read Job, is going to be very transparent about some of the things that he feels, and you'll identify with them. And so you're going, to, you're going to experience the darkness of soul. And then you will have well-meaning friends who will wound you. And that's what we see in these chapters that we're in. And, this, and today, it kind of wraps up the friendship issues, because we're going to be moving on to some other things as we go along. We're going to jump into uh, uh, chapter 26 and 28 from here. 
because we won't be going through every single chapter or every single verse, but just know that as Job encounters these friends, there's these three different conversations that he has with his friends, and they wound him deeply. In fact, Job just says, you know, you are like, uh, in fact, in chapter 6, verse 14, Job says, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends. I'm not finding that with you, even though he forsakes the fear of God. But my brothers, you guys are as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow. And that's his friends. But here's the big question. Is God unjust when we suffer? The questions that you see there in your program, take it home and go over it with your children and your grandchildren. Help them to think in your home through these questions. Lead them into the word so that their, their life could be founded upon scripture. So when their teacher in their high school class, their science teacher challenges them in their relationship who God is and says, God really so good? Is God really so great? What do you do about evil? Which are old, old arguments that your children could stand against them. But it's a very real question. Don't be afraid to ask the question, is God unjust when we suffer? From his friend's perspective, they see that all suffering is deserved. Doesn't make any difference what it is. From their perspective, and it's still even true today, the sense that when someone is successful, God must really love them. That's what's wrong with the prosperity gospel. The idea is that if you're successful, God's favor is upon you. Now, none of us generate our own success. Lord, the scripture's clear. It's God, it is, who has made us. But it isn't always connected. And certainly there is blessing in being obedient. There's blessing in finding favor. But there are many, many things that happen to us that have nothing to do with how we have behaved. The car accident that takes out one's life. You may not have had any responsibility. You just were in the wrong place at the wrong time, but God was still in control. There's something that he allowed to happen. It's a lot in life that he gives to us. Just this last week in news, there was a, a young woman who went in for her normal prenatal program and the doctor got the charts wrong and they immediately anesthetized her and, and, and aborted her baby without her permission. She couldn't understand when she went home why she was bleeding so badly. She was looking forward to this little baby. I mean, how do you explain that? Was that because of her sin? No. And yet her friends, Job's friends, would have said, yeah, that all suffering is deserved. All suffering comes because of one's disobedience and one's rebellion, and that is not true. And if you have been made to feel that way, I'm here to share with you, that's not always true. There are some things that we bring on ourselves, for sure. If I've been using drugs, I shouldn't be surprised if I get hepatitis. If I rob a bank, am I now in jail? Well, whose fault was that? If I get drunk and I crash my car, and I, who, whose fault's that, right? But there are many, many things that you and I that have no connection to that kind of thing, and maybe there are some of you today that have been made to feel that what's been upon you is because it was, you deserved it. His friend's perspective also is that, there, that if you repent, they automatically will bring blessing and you saw that as I read about I want to say Bilbo <laughs> Bill Dad <laughs> will not God bless you if you turn and purify yourself will he not st stand up and bless you greater and that's in verse 7 your beginnings will seem humble so prosperous will your future and so they really believe that if Job would turn from his wickedness that blessing would come upon him Job actually had a similar perspective this is why he was struggling so badly. 
He might have even thought that before his own suffering, he might have been in the same camp as his friends, but he knew that his life was different. If you want to read about Job's life, read chapter 29 and chapter 31. Don't do it now, but go home and do that. And he'll, be, he'll begin to count because he, Eliphaz says, surely there was a time where you took somebody's security and left them naked just so that you could make a buck. Surely there was a time with all of your wealth, you, you refused to help somebody. In chapter 29 and 31, Job recounts and said, even a man who was dying was glad to see me. Because I, I would go to his bedside and some of the last words he would hear is, Ray, don't worry, I'm gonna take care of your wife for you. He did that again and again and again. And I look at his life, man, I wish I was that good. And Job says, I can't think of anything in my past that deserves the afflictions that I have. But he knows that his affliction comes from God. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. He says, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. And as you read through Job's responses, he knows that this affliction has come from the hands of God. And he doesn't understand why, but he knows that it comes from God. He also knows that God's wisdom is profound. Look at chapter 9, verse 4. It says that his wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? So Job knows, and as we were to keep reading through this, we would see that, that if we were to stand before God, that what he knows and what he understands is so much more than, than us. We know so little I mean, shame on us to even think that we could stand before God. And Job says, I, no, if I were to stand before him, he'd, he'd, he would silence me just like that. I would have nothing that I could say to him. He knows that his wisdom is profound. He knows also that God stands alone. Look at verses 10 and 15 in chapter 9. We didn't read it, but it's a part of the scripture that you'll read in your life group today. It says, he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted, when he passes by me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what in the world are you doing? And so he knows that God stands alone. What he means by that is that God's not answerable to anybody. He's the potter. He's the one, we're the clay in his hands. He can make us any way that he wants. If he wants me to be a fat ashtray, he'll make me a fat ashtray, you know? If he wants me to have a skinny neck, he'll make it. It's his pleasure. He's the potter, I'm the clay. How can the clay ever say to God, why are you making me this way? I don't want to be like this one, I want to be like this one. And the potter says, no, I want, no, in fact, I'm going to start all over again. <laughs> he, he's not accountable to anybody is what Job is saying. And he is above all. Look at verses Five through ten, he moves mountains without knowing it. He overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place. He makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens. He's above all of these things. The earth is the Lord. Everything that in it is His, including you and me. But Job is still wrestling, even though he knows these things are to be true. He knows that his functions come from God. He knows that God's wisdom is profound. He stands alone. He's above all. But is God good? Is God good when he permits suffering? How can a loving God allow this to happen? Why doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't he answer prayer? Why doesn't he heal me? How can he be good and allow me to stay in this place? That's what Job was wrestling with. He knew that God was mighty, but he seemed far away. And sometimes in our darkest moments, we will identify with that and we'll seem like he is far away. 
So let's look at this. How can God still be good when he prevents suffering? What, what things can we learn through suffering that we can only learn through suffering? One of the things that happens is that when we suffer is that we're reminded that we live in a broken and fallen world. It takes us right back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. This is not what the Lord wanted or envisioned. He created something really beautiful as a gift for mankind where he could display his glory and he would have a creature that, in his enemies that he can interact with. Not that God, he needed it, but it was an opportunity to pour out his love and his grace. And Adam and Eve rejected all of that. They wanted to go their own way and we're experiencing it today. For any of you who uh, have a chance to walk on anyone's farm, don't do it barefoot because there's puncture vines out there. And every time I get a puncture vine in my you know, goat head and my foot, because I didn't have a shoe on, I'm reminded of what happened in chapter three. I think that was the first plant that God made in their sin. It's like, there's gonna be thorns and thistles as a result of your sin. And he, that's when he made puncture vines. They, had, they didn't exist until then. But uh, that's, we live in a broken and we live in a fallen world. And our suffering reminds us of this. Every time you go into a hospital, you'll know that there's just something not right. It also reminds us when we suffer, it reminds us of our own mortality and our own weaknesses. Every one of us are headed for the grave. And when we are so afflicted, boy, it reminds us that we're not immortal. <clears throat> Some of us are afflicted younger. Others, it comes when we're older. All of us at some point in time are headed for a wheelchair. All of us at a point in time, uh, it's gonna be harder to get up in the morning. We're all gonna face something. We're not gonna get through this life without tears. And when I think through this, I think of Lazarus. Lazarus who experienced the, 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 the debilitation. And I don't know how long it suffered. We know it was at least a week. And the last week of his life, his two sisters called for Jesus, said, Jesus, would you come? Our brother is really, really sick. He's not gonna make it. If you could just come, we know that you could heal him. You know we would, you would heal him. And he says, no, I don't think I'm gonna go. Was God unloving, when Jesus unloving when he said that? No, I'm not gonna go. I'm gonna stay here. It's because he had a plan, right? <laughs> and then he says, okay, guys, it's time for us to go. And he says, oh, by the way, Lazarus is dead. He actually says, he's asleep. Well, he's asleep, well, then we don't need to go. No, guys, I mean, he's dead. And sure enough, he gets there. Now, I don't know if you've had the experience. Uh, I've been with several folks who bring you through life. It's not easy. It's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. <clears throat> the body doesn't want to let go of the spirit. And uh, it's... But Lazarus went through that. And they wrapped him up and they stuck him in the grave. And he was there for three days until Jesus arrived. And when Jesus got there, there's all sorts of crying and weeping going around. He himself is broken. He cries and weeps. And then he speaks Lazarus' name. And Lazarus comes out. My imagine is he hops out because he's all bound up. <laughs> but he gets out. They roll the stone away. He hops out and he's living. He's breathing. Blood's flowing back into his veins again. He's eating again. He's laughing again. He's having dinners again. And then he dies again. 
We don't have that record, but I don't know how long he lived, but he had to go through that again. Can you imagine the disappointment of having gone through it one time? You say, I gotta, go, I gotta do that again. Every single person that Jesus healed died again. Every single one, every one of us. And so here you are, you know, praying, Lord, would you heal me? And he may, he certainly is able, but there will be a time where he will say, no, this is how I'm gonna bring you home. So every one of us, when we suffer, we are reminded of our own mortality and we're reminded of our weakness. And then we also, when what we learn through suffering, we're reminded that this world is not our home. (laughs) We don't belong here. In fact, what's interesting, when you study various cultures, there is not a single culture, nor has there ever been a time in all of history, going back as far as early human records record, everyone... Every culture, every human being had a sense that there was something after death. The Egyptians, that's why they had these pyramids and tombs. They filled it full of stuff so that person could have something when they would go on to their eternal journey. Every single culture, without exception, the Aborigines, the Amazon Indians, it doesn't make any difference. You pick it. The North American Indians all knew something else was there after death. And every one of us knows when you go to a funeral and you see that body that's in that casket, you'll say, that's dad's body, but he's not there, right? There's something missing. His body's there, but there's something missing that made dad, dad. He's in heaven with Christ here today. That's the truth. And all of our suffering reminds us that this world is not our home. We cannot hang on to it. And a part of that process is getting our fingers off of this life and prepared for what God has in store for us. And also it reminds us that God is in control, not us. You and I have no control. You can exercise and eat vegan and all this other stuff. Not that you shouldn't eat well and eat healthy and be concerned about it, but you're still gonna die. Heck, that... I actually find it kind of funny <laughs> that uh, I know I should eat better than all these things, but I, I, I know guys who ate perfectly and died at 56, <laughs> jogging. <laughs> they should have stayed home, had a cupcake. They would have lived longer. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's the truth, isn't it? Because <laughs> God is in control. He's in control. And I like the passage, and I hope you look it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Because here's the Apostle Paul, who is this great spirit. Wouldn't you want to be as spiritual as Paul? And he prays. And you would think that this mighty man of prayer, that God would answer his prayers when he prayed. And he did a bunch of them, but not this one. This is, a, this is a passage of unanswered prayer where Paul prays the Lord because he's afflicted in some way. It's a debilitating affliction. We don't know what it is. Some think it was in his eyes. We don't know. But whatever it was was a big problem for Paul and he knew he could serve Jesus a whole lot better if he didn't have this affliction. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed that God would take this affliction away and God spoke to him and said, Job, or Paul, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not going to answer that prayer, Paul, because in your weakness is when I'll show up and I'll be strong. 
And it's interesting, as you read through, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, I came to you with trembling and fear and great weakness. And the power of God was seen in my life. And that's why God in his goodness allows us to suffer and to struggle so that his power might be seen in our lives. Isn't that something? We have a friend, Nancy and I had a friend went to school with. His name was Wayne Hanna. He wrote a book on suffering. He himself is afflicted with Crohn's disease. They've taken out most of his intestines. And he had, in in his book, he writes a story. He met a woman who had a debilitating stroke. And she said to Wayne, I am so glad that God brought this stroke into my life. And he wondered, how could you say that? You're partially paralyzed. Your speech has been slurred. And it says, because of my stroke, that my relationship with my daughter was made new again. I wish you had given it to me sooner. God is good. He's infinitely good. And he knew what would happen. And that stroke was not at all going to be meaningless in that woman's life. So through our suffering, we learn that God is in control. So what good is accomplished in our suffering have touched on it, that the power of God might be seen in our life. These things happen that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. And he takes great delight in that. It's not an accident where you and I are in our life. And his desire is that he might be seen. In fact, God's greatest delight and his greatest treasure is when we trust in him more than our success. In fact, the next point, suffering is a refining process in our life. That's why James says we should count it all joy because God is at work in our life. And he's working our life and he's developing perseverance and endurance so that we might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that perfection does not mean that we are without flaws but that we are mature and can stand strong and we can weather. And Lord finds that to be more precious and more valuable than any gold or silver that you and I might have. The refining of our faith is precious before God. He loves it when we cry out to him. He finds great delight when we lean upon him, when we can trust only in him, not in ourselves. So trials come so that our faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise and honor when Jesus is revealed in our lives. What good is accomplished in our suffering? It also prepares us to serve others. This is huge. To think about that God loves each of us so much that he would use my suffering to be a blessing to you. He would use your suffering to be a blessing to somebody else not just into your own family and your children and in your grandchildren who see it, who see mom and dad struggling, but it's also in the neighbors who see it. It's in the people that you work with who see it. He prepares us to help others. And so we, in fact, there's a, a, a class that's meeting right now. It's called The Haven. And uh, it's, it's for moms and dads who've lost children. And you know who's leading it? Someone who lost a child, <laughs> who the Lord has been working in, preparing her. And I've talked to Tessa. And she says, you know, I think I'm ready. And I want to help others who are going through the same thing that my husband and I went through. That's what the Lord does. And in this room, there's a story for every story. There are people here who have been sexually abused, whom God is, is working and continuing to heal, that would love to share with you there's hope. There's people in here who have had great financial I know of individuals 
who have had great success financially and have lost it all several times. And they, they would come alongside of you as well as the wife would. And to say, honey, it's going to be okay. This is not the end of the road for you. Let me assure you through our experiences that God has a plan. And this suffering you're experiencing is not meaningless. There are folks who have struggled in their marriages that will say to you, oh, God is faithful. And all of these things he uses to prepare us to serve others. And then lastly, what good is accomplished in our suffering is that Christ is exalted in our lives. And I like what Paul says in Philippians. He says, I know that, this, that me being in prison, I know it concerns you, but it's also for your benefit. And in truth, for me to live is Christ. If he would allow me to be in chains, I just want to live for him. In fact, in doing so, the whole praetorian guard has come to know Christ. All into, all into Caesar's household has come to know Christ. This thing is not meaningless. But if I were to die, that's great, you too. So I don't, know which, I don't know, if you were to give me a choice, I'm not sure what choice I would get. I think I probably would choose to die. But I know if he would allow me to live here, it's for your sake. And he's exalted and he does that so that Christ would be exalted in me. And he is exalted in our sufferings, not in, uh, so much in our success. So here's where I have been wanting to go. How ought we to pray? So tomorrow, on Tuesday, we're going to get a whole bunch of cards. You've been filling out cards saying, please pray for my friend. And I would venture to say that many of those cards, because you, you're, you're, you're burdened for a friend who is facing some significant crisis I want to share with you how also ought to, how you can also pray, because certainly God is able to heal. He's able to deliver. I'm not doubting any part of that, but there are many, many, many times that His answer is like Paul, not right now, or maybe no. And what do we do if it's not right now, or if it's no? And that's where I love Colossians chapter one, verses eight through fourteen. Boy, memorize it. Because wouldn't you want this prayer answered? Even more than healing? Wouldn't it be great? And here's how Paul would pray. I'm praying for you as I think about you. That you would have an increased understanding of God's will for your life. Wouldn't it be good to know that this, this affliction that, that we are bearing, this, this life experience that we're having to go through, that we have an understanding of what God is doing? At work, and Paul says, I'm, I'm praying that you would have a growing understanding of the knowledge and understanding of the will for your life. He says, I pray that your life as you go through this would be worthy of Christ. Wouldn't you want that prayer answered in your life and for the friends that you're praying for, Lord? I pray as they go through Parkinson's that they would live a life worthy of Christ, that they would not lose heart, that they'd keep their eyes on you, they would hold fast to you in even the darkest moments so that they would reflect you in every way. It's a prayer that God wants to answer. And he says, and I, I pray that they would bear fruit. That, that, that this thing they're in, Lord, would, would you, would, don't let this thing be wasted. I love John Piper. He has a book that says, don't let your cancer be wasted. He, went, he himself went through cancer. Lord, don't, don't waste this experience in this doctor's office. Don't waste this experience as I connect with these technicians. Don't waste this experience as I, as I interact with workers. We had a gentleman come up last night. He has bone cancer and he's going back to work. Lord, don't waste this experience as I interact with others who know what it is that I'm bearing, that it would bear fruit for you. 
Fourthly, Lord, would you give me endurance? Would you help me to persevere? Would you help me not to give up? Would you help me to run this race all the way to the end, Lord? Lord wants to answer that prayer. And the last one, Lord, would you help me to give thanks and praise to you that through this circumstance and through this difficulty, that the things that come out of my lips is not bitterness or anger, but thanksgiving, trusting in you, recognizing that you're in control, that this is all about you. Lord, help me that even in these experiences I might give thanks. One of, never met her. She's a little older than I am. But boy, I have been so inspired by Johnny Erickson Tata. Here's, here was a young gal. She's for 51 years now. She has been paralyzed from the neck down. If you, when you look at her picture, she's a beautiful woman. But if you could see the rest of her body, she has lived her life in a wheelchair. She has braces on her arms. She has some shoulder muscles is all that she can control that helps her arms to move. Go on YouTube. You can hear her testimony. But at 18, she, she was, uh, her dad was, um, had been an a Olympic wrestler, very athletic family. They'd gone to Chesapeake Bay, which isn't too far from where we were in Pennsylvania. She swam out to a, um, a diving platform. Without thinking, she dove in, and she dove into shallow water, broke her neck, and from 18 to now, she's 69 years old. She has been paralyzed from the neck down. Her testimony is that for years, for several years, she was in deep depression, as any of us would be. She was suicidal. And she couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> she says in her testimony, I couldn't cut myself. <laughs> I couldn't swallow any pills unless people put them in my mouth. <laughs> she was paralyzed. Until she came to a place, and this took some time for her to get there. Because people also taunt, didn't taunt her, but well-meaning said, oh, the Lord's going to heal you. And she went through those experiences of all that hope and failed hope. But it, her life began to change when she came to this passage of Scripture that said, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Lord, would you help me? And in everything, give thanks. For this is God's will concerning you in Christ Jesus. She looked at those passages of Scripture and said, hey, Lord, how do I do that? Would you help me, Lord, to learn how to give thanks for my condition? Would you help me to learn how to give thanks in the things that I'm suffering right now? And the Lord began to do a new work. And this is her testimony of God, how God's Spirit began to fill her and to change her sadness into joy. This was... This was written on her blog just a few days ago. I thought what was interesting was last Saturday, you know what was on her blog? Had no clue. <laughs> he giveth more grace when the burdens are greater. <laughs> she loves that song. But this is what she wrote just a few days ago. She says, whatever adversity you may be facing right now, don't be ashamed if you feel weak or lack strength or resources. Isn't that encouraging? That's the best time to present yourself to God so he can supply his strength. September 21st. So I don't know if that, does that speak to you? Boy, it encourages me to know where she says, don't be ashamed if you feel weak right now. Don't be ashamed if you feel like you lack strength or resources. That's the best time to present yourself before the Lord. 
Because what you're experiencing is not meaningless. And he is good. And he is great. And his goodness and his greatness will be seen in how he brings fruit out of your life. How he enables you to run this race. How you're able to persevere through affliction. And people are watching. And how he's exalted in your life. And what Johnny will tell you, hey, it's going to soon be over. And he's going to wipe away the tears. And I'm not going to be in this wheelchair anymore. I'm going to be able to use my arms. And I'll have all eternity. This is just a short time. But with Jesus, it will be a long time. And I can't wait. I can't wait either. Isn't that great? Isn't that good news? Hope you're encouraged here today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I'm grateful, Lord, that today we can speak with great confidence that you are good, that you are great, that nothing's too difficult for you. And you know every story that's here. You know every name that's here today. And so, Father, I pray that you would bring comfort. You talk about a peace that surpasses all understanding. You talk about keeping our hearts quiet and at rest as we trust in you. Lord, would you do that today? Would your peace descend and encourage us, helping us to run this race for you? until we see you face to face. Lord, we love you. These songs that we sing, Lord, are so true. And we can't wait till we run into your arms and hear you say, welcome home. Bless us, Lord, as we serve you this week. Would you help our lives to bear fruit for you? In Jesus' name, amen, amen.